All right, the book of Jeremiah. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today and for the, the joy and the privilege that we have to gather as a body of Christ and uh, the sweet fellowship we share and the reminders of the gospel. And now we get to again fellowship around your word and sink our teeth into it and try and understand the message of a book like Jeremiah. And so give us ears to hear, give me the ability to communicate uh, this information in a way that is helpful and profitable for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I was thinking after last week, after our collective sigh of, (laughs) (sighs) made it through kings, like I have to commend you for your sticking with me through this. And I know that it is a ton of, this huge survey, right, that we're trying to do. And I got thinking afterwards, I was like, we're, the, the, the intention is if, if you can walk away from, after, from us surveying a book and just have learned one thing that helps you read that book better, we'll have succeeded, right? So if you walk away from kings and understand the significance of the division of the kingdom, you're better off reading it. So hopefully that, that's helpful. Like th- there's a, so much information to communicate and we just don't have time to do it. <laughs> so it just hopefully it make you a little bit better reader of, of uh, these books, which I think this is especially important to consider when we come now to the, what, we, what we normally would consider the prophets. Right? We're in the, we are in the prophet section. We've been looking at the former prophets, which are all the historical narrative of the nation of Israel. And now we're going to the latter prophets. And, and I think a helpful way to understand what the prophets are doing is a, is a comparison to the New Testament. How many of you would say some of your favorite books in the New, New Testament are the epistles, not the gospel, gospels? I think a lot of us, right? We love Romans, we love Ephesians, we love Philippians and Colossians. What the epistles do for the New Testament, the prophets do for the old, right? The epistles in the New Testament are helping us understand what Jesus did, right? Uh, Matthew 27 isn't really fully explained until you get to Romans and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, and you see what Christ accomplished. So the, the prophets in the Old Testament are very much the same way. We've had all this history, we could say the Gospels, right, in Genesis through Kings, and now we got to go, well, what does this history mean? And what is the Lord actually doing in the history of the nation of Israel? What's his perspective on these events? And so that's what the prophets help us do. And I think that a lot of times we get bogged down. People, if you're doing your, your daily Bible reading and you're in the Old Testament, there's two places, right? There's the law, Leviticus, and then the prophets. And a part of it is because we don't understand the audiences being addressed and we don't understand the purpose. So, Hopefully, after we get done with Jeremiah, we'll have a little bit better, better idea of who is being addressed and kind of the overall message of the book. Does that make sense? That's kind of where we're trying to go. Now, uh, probably you're, you're also asking, why are we going to Jeremiah? So we were in Kings and we skipped Chronicles. Chronicles will be the last book we cover because it is the last book in the Jewish Bible. Um, and then the order of the prophets, so we're going to be in Jeremiah this week, Ezekiel next week, and then Isaiah. Uh, and why that order? I'm not entirely sure, except that my biblical theologies, they all split. Some of them put Isaiah at the front, and some put Jeremiah at the front. And so we've been following Stephen Dempster's outline, and he puts Jeremiah first. So there we go. That's why we're doing Jeremiah. Um, I also think, though, actually, after doing ending Kings where it did, remember, Kings ends with the exile of Judah. So we have Israel and Judah, those two nations. 
Israel was exiled first. They're the northern ten tribes, and then Judah's the southern tribes. And, and they fall, they're carried off into captivity in Babylon. And Jeremiah really picks up at that point. So if you've, you're reading along, you've finished reading Kings, you jump into Jeremiah, you're automatically reading the prophetic commentary on those last few chapters of Kings. So as, even as I was looking at it this week and being fresh from coming out of Kings, I was like, this makes so much sense. So that's another reason why. Isaiah, when we get to Isaiah, Isaiah is quite a bit earlier than where Jeremiah uh, is, okay? So uh, the way we're going to kind of try and work through this is we're going to spend uh, some time just talking about um, how to, to read the prophets, uh, who they are, and just some introductory stuff. And then we're going to kind of do a... Uh, 5,000 mile an hour <laughs> trip through the prophets, a really broad survey, just kind of touching on some important things. Uh, you've got a broad outline in your notes, um, and hopefully that'll help, okay? Um, so the, uh, when we come to the prophets, what we're seeing is that the, the narrative of Israel is paused now. It will pick up again when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, but the history of Israel is kind of paused, and the, the, comment, the, the prophets are a commentary or a reflection. When we get to like Daniel, the story picks up a little bit. Um, the other thing to think about the prophets is that they are largely poetic works, right? They're not linear histories. Um, they do contain historical narrative. Jeremiah has quite a bit of historical narrative, but they use a lot of imagery, a lot of poetry, um, and a lot of illustrations. We'll see Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both of them in their lives are illustrations. We'll get to Ezekiel, we'll see him lay on his side for 490 days. As in, <laughs> What a sign, right? The Lord says, hey, lay on your side to demonstrate the siege of Jerusalem. Hmm. Um, so there's, there's things like that, and that all is kind of foreign for us. We don't communicate like that on a regular basis, so it takes a little bit more work to understand. Uh, Dempster said this, he said, the prophetic commentary adds a new dimension to the story of Israel. The audience reading the text has read about the historical accounts of God's relationship with Israel and its ups and downs. That's what we've just covered through the last 11 weeks. But now it gets a glimpse into the inner heart of God to experience his emotional life as revealed through the voice of a prophet. In the prophets, God bears his heart, and it is often a broken one. The covenant was not simply a legal, contractual matter, but one that was intensely personal, alive with love, in which the relationship was primary. So, again, if you think about the prophets, they do. They reveal the heart of God. And when we, Jeremiah, as we're talking about, it's a book of judgment, and it is, if we can use this line, it's a broken heart. Like, the Lord is grieved over the sin of his people, okay? So let's talk about who the prophets were. We've touched on this a little bit, and we've used this term, and other people coined this, not me, but the prophets were covenant enforcers. We talked about this with Elijah and Elisha. Their role was to call a wayward, sinful people back to obedience to the covenant. Israel's a covenantal nation. They've entered into it with the Lord, and there are consequences for their disobedience. Here comes the prophet saying, You've transgressed. You've broken, uh, broken the, the covenant. Um, the words that they uh, spoke indicted Israel for their disobedience, and then they're always calling them to repent. The prophets were Yahweh's mouthpieces. So the Lord chose them, as we saw like with Elijah and Elisha, as we're going to see with Jeremiah. They are all chosen by the Lord, and the Lord puts his words in their mouth, and they cannot not speak it. Uh, we'll get to Jeremiah chapter twenty. And Jeremiah is being persecuted, and he, 
he, he's wrestling with the fact, like, he did, well, I can't put into, I don't know exactly, but it seems if he's like, this is hard. I'm being persecuted for what I'm saying. And so he says, if I say I will not mention him, this is Jeremiah 20, verse 9, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot, right? So he has the word of the Lord, and he cannot not speak it, even as he's in stocks and being persecuted, okay? So that's who the prophets are. They are chosen by the Lord, and they have this divine call uh, to deliver this message. Jeremiah, we learn a little bit about him. This is from uh, Jensen's survey of the Old Testament, and they give us a summary. It says, Jeremiah was born when the very wicked king Manasseh was still ruling Judah. He was raised in a small town called Ananoth, Anathoth, located just a few miles north of Jerusalem. His father was a priest, Hilkiah by name. Following in the footsteps of his father, Jeremiah entered the priesthood at an early age. When he, was a still, when he was still a young man, probably around 21, God made known to him that he'd been divinely ordained to be a prophet, and his duties as priest were terminated. Um, he's known as the weeping prophet. That's his uh, kind of moniker that can be described. And the reason is, is because uh, he had a really difficult job, right? He is, he is he's serving as, at the time when the kingdom of Judah is fallen, uh, he weeps because of the sin in the state of the, na- the nation, the, the message of judgment he has to deliver. Um, Jeremiah is a pretty dark book in a lot of ways. There's a, there's a lot of judgment in it. Uh, he weeps because he suffers a lot of personal, physical persecution, as we'll see. Um, he is a lonely person. He really only has like one faithful companion, Baruch, his scribe, who is with him for most of the time, and was probably the one that recorded most of these things. Um, The other thing that's interesting about Jeremiah is the many laments that are recorded. So when we think about him being a weeping prophet, we'll see him, uh, the Lord say something, and he's delivering this message, and then he responds with questions and hurts, and he's lamenting this fact. He's why is this happening, Lord? Why are you allowing this? Um, Why are people persecuting me? And the Lord always, always answers it. Um, you see this like in chapter 11. And in lament, I always think we need to stop. And, and we'll, when we get to the Psalms, we'll spend more time on this. But lament is an interesting language that we don't use much. Um, in, in terms of, in our culture, we don't lament, and, or, and even as Christians. Uh, but in times of deep sorrow and grief, a lament is a cry to God expressing like, I'm hurt. I have a lot of questions. I don't understand how this happens. Um, it's a, it's a cry of complaint, but not a sinful complaint. It's one that is, is uh, why is the evil and wickedness and tragedy in the world happening? And then it waits for the Lord to answer. And the Lord always does answer. Um, in his time, he always answers uh, the complaint. It doesn't ever, this is the other thing too that's important with the lament. It never charges God with wrong, right? So you're not sitting there and, and God, you're the reason this has happened. But it's, it's asking difficult questions of God. And the Psalms have, have several of those. So when we get to Psalms, we'll, we'll spend some more time on that. Um, Jeremiah, his ministry. Uh, so he ministers during the reigns of the last five kings of Judah. And we'll touch on who those are in just, just a minute. Um, and so again, during his ministry, the, the nation of Judah falls to um, the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are the dominant world power at the time. We'll uh, uh, 
when we get to Isaiah, we'll see the Assyrians as the dominant world power. So just think that Israel and Judah, you have those, those two separate nations, and then you always have Syria, which would be to the north, the Assyrians further north. Again, remember Nineveh, that's the Assyrians. Then they are conquered by the Babylonians, so we think of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And then ultimately the Babylonians will fall to the Medes and Persians. So think Iran, modern-day Iran, and then think of the story of Esther, uh, that's Medo-Persia. Okay, those are kind of the dominant world powers. But in Jeremiah, the troubling world power is Babylon. Okay, because that's going to come. That's the uh, the nation that brings judgment against uh, Judah. Jeremiah is a prophet for approximately fifty years, so he has a long ministry uh, that he serves this for. Let's talk about who he ministered to. He was a prophet to the nations, and by that we mean his, his message encompassed more than just Israel and Judah, especially when we get to, I think it's chapter 44 and beyond, he's pronouncing judgment against all of Israel's enemies and against Babylon as well. So in that sense, uh, he's declaring it to the nations, but primarily his ministry is to the southern kingdom of Judah, and his interactions are to the king, he goes, we'll see several times he's going to the king and delivering a message. Other times he's preaching it to the whole nation. He'll go to the temple or uh, to the gates or different places like that, and he's proclaiming a message to, to the whole, whole people, okay? Um, go to chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 5. And the other thing that I think we need to think about is why... Why, uh, what was the moral condition of the nation at this time? And here we're asking the question, really, why does Judah need a prophet? And so look at chapter 5, verse 19. Uh, And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so shall you serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. So uh, this, and we'll touch on this again later, but in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, the Lord promised, if you break the covenant, you will be excised from the land. You will be taken out. And so that's what's happening here. And then look at chapter 5, verse 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? So this is, they're now at a state as a nation where they love to have false prophets. They love to have the worship of Yahweh syncretized with their own ideas, right? They're, it's not the true worship, and, and as Jeremiah and the Lord is saying through him, they love it that way. They love, they love their sin. One of the things, and, and we touched on this in 2 Kings chapter seven or 17, where Israel is carried off into captivity, and, and the author of Kings is import, it points us out that Judah does not learn the lesson from their sister Israel. Uh, Judah is just as idolatrous as Israel will be, and they will, will grow in their idolatry. And as we're going to see in, in, later on in Jeremiah, um, Judah almost is, their punishment is almost worse. Because there, there's, in essence, those who have more light, right, for, and for the gospel, there's more uh, weight that comes with that, more responsibility, so Judah, you know, think about maintaining that lamp of the throne of David and having that descendant there. Uh, there is, there's almost more responsibility on their part for what they have, and so their judgment is quite um, wrathful, I guess. Um, the other thing, too, in, in Jeremiah and the prophets, they address ethical issues that the people are dealing with. So in the nation, you think about... Um, 
Well, the priesthood, you think about uh, poor people are not treated well, the land is not treated properly, um, women are not treated properly, ethical issues abound. And the reason is, is because when you abandon the true and right worship of Yahweh, uh, which actually is designed for the protection of people and for the protection of land and all these different things, disaster ensues and ethical issues and problems arise. So the prophets are often addressing those, and they're going to point out these ethical issues as evidence of their abandonment of the worship of Yahweh. So when we, we see those things, we know why they're, why they're doing that. Um, G.E. Yates said this about the ethical issues. He said, Those in Judah became like the gods they worshipped, having eyes but not seeing and ears but not hearing. They believed that ritual sacrifice could take the place of obedience to Yahweh's commands. So by that, they could go to the temple and they could offer their sacrifice. They could do their uh, church on Easter and and Christmas and think they're doing all right. Uh, And then he continues to say, The result was that fraud, violence, dishonesty, and a lack of concern for the poor and needy permeated Judah society at large. So they, they could have all the outward trappings and appearance of obedience to Yahweh, but how they treated the poor, how they obeyed the law, really showed evidence their hearts were far from the Lord. Um, The message of the book, let's touch on that for a minute. The message and kind of a summary, and I think I put this in your notes, but Jeremiah is primarily a book of judgment, and that really struck me as I was reading through it again this last week. It is a book of judgment. Um, He lists the sins of the people which bring judgment. He discusses how the people should respond to judgment, which is repent, and then with that, we're going to see, he's going to say, don't rebel, right? The Lord has brought this judgment, and, and the people are going to try and rebel against it. And he's going to say, don't do that. Submit to, to this. And then he offers hope that judgment is not the end of the nation. There is more left. The Lord is not forsaking his promise to the nation of Israel. There is hope. Um, he has a, his message also has two parts, and we'll see this in, in chapter 1 with his call. Uh, the first part of his message is to tear down, right? So that's the judgment aspect. But the second part is to build up. And so we'll see encouragement for those who are in exile, um, uh, a message of, of salvation and hope. Um, the other thing, too, that we'll see, and, and there's kind of a shift in chapter 7, there are calls to repent, right, over and, well, and even later on in in the book, right? The Lord's going to send Jeremiah and he's going to preach a message and say, they may repent from this, but there comes a certain point where their fate is sealed and and there's no more offer of repentance and judgment is final and the people will be carried off into into judgment. So that's another thing that is unique about the book of of Jeremiah. Um, The structure of the book. So again, this this is where my linear Western mind gets thrown off with Jeremiah, right? Because it is not... Uh, chronological, it's thematic. Uh, there are places where uh, events that happened before are listed after, right? So you get to like chapter 24 and you have an event listed there, but it happened way back over here. So that just messes with my mind. Why do you do that? Just put it in order. It'd be so much. Well, no, it wouldn't be because I, I'm questioning the the way the word of God is laid out. And I'm not meaning to do that. But uh, so it just takes a little bit more more work the other thing that we'll see in the book, it's a collection of sermons. So we'll read, like in chapter 7, he'll go up to the temple and he'll preach a sermon. Uh, he's going to have visions, which we'll read about. Um, the oracles, those will be the, the, 
the words of judgment, so to speak, that he's speaking forth and describing in this, this uh, poetic language what's going to happen. Um, that'll be like chapter 2 through chapter 6, uh, or an example of some of the oracles. Um, we'll see, again, physical illustrations, like when we get to chapter 13 and the image of the ruined loincloth, which is a unique image, uh, but really drives home the point. And then there's also letters and books that are in here. So there's historical documents. So, uh, uh, chapters 31 through 33 is a, a letter that Jeremiah sends off to the exiles in Babylon. So you have to, as you're reading through the book, you're, you're trying to discern, okay, what kind of, uh, what genre is this that he's using? Um, and, and so you, you really have to work to do that. And the other thing that's important to try and understand is the audience that's being addressed at the time. So for one, who is speaking and to whom are they, they speaking? What nation is it uh, that he's addressing? That Paying attention to those details will help you understand um, what, what those are. Um, this is a lot, of, a lot of introduction, but hopefully it helps, helps you uh, understand it. The other thing that we need to think about in the, in the prophets, in understanding them, and all of these things too will help us understand the prophets as a whole. These things apply to Isaiah and to Ezekiel, although each of them has unique elements. Um, they all apply in different ways. Uh, these are four prophetic points that we'll see in the book. Um, so again, when you're, when you're reading any biblical prophecy— you're trying to determine kind of like what time period are they talking about, right? They're talking about something in the future. How far in the future, right? Um, that's the big debate over how like you interpret Revelation. You know, is it, uh, did it happen in the past? Is it happening now? Is it happening in the future? Well, the same thing is in the Old Testament prophets, okay? So there's really four um, areas that we want to look at. So the first one would be immediate context. So that's something that's going to happen shortly. And we often think about this in terms of, uh, I think about it in like Isaiah chapter 7, where Isaiah goes to Ahaz the king, and, and he's fearful about an, an invading army, and Isaiah's there to assure him, hey, they won't carry you off into captivity. That's immediate right away. Or you think about um, with Elijah and Elisha, I think it's in uh, Elisha, Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 8, there's a fear about the Syrians coming in and carrying them off into captivity. And he says, don't worry, the Lord will protect you. And right away it happens. Okay, so these are things that are just happening right in the prophet's own time period. Immediate context. You got to think about about that. Uh, The second uh, contextual note would be the near future context. So this is not right away, but it's in a short while. And in Jeremiah, that's primarily the, the exile. So they're going to be exiled to Babylon for 70 years, and then they will return. So that's in the future, but it's the near future. It's not hundreds or thousands of years um, from our perspective. Okay, So near future context in Jeremiah, you're thinking about the exile of the Jews to Babylon, and then their return to the land. And then you have Christ's first advent. So they're looking forward to... Um, the, the coming of the promised one, the Messiah. And this is where Isaiah shines, right? This is, Isaiah is the fifth gospel in this way. He, he spends a lot of time looking at the suffering servant and the righteous reign of the branch. Um, Jeremiah doesn't spend as much time, but when we think about when we get to chapter 31 and the promise of the new covenant, that's something that the Messiah will come and institute. Uh, he will talk about, in a couple of different places, the raising of a descendant like David who will rule forever, right? That's the coming of, of the Messiah. 
And then the final point would be the kingdom of Christ. So that's looking forward to what we call the, the millennial kingdom or the, the, the reign of Christ on earth as we think about how we understand, we think we understand how the scriptures and the end all works out, right? Christ will return and establish a literal kingdom on the earth, which he will rule from, from and the new heavens and the new earth will be created and we will be living in this place, but completely reconstituted and new in perfect forever bodies. And Jesus is king, right? That's the day that we're looking forward to. So when the prophets are speaking about, you know, a day when the lion lays down with the lamb and things like that, that's what we're looking forward to is that, that glorious day. Okay, so those are kind of your four prophetic points. Does this make sense so far? I haven't given anybody time to be like, stop, that doesn't make sense, okay? Okay, and then the last thing I want to talk about before we jump into the book, is these historical events and people. And I think these are important because we're going to see these names listed throughout the book. And so if we understand who these people are, we can kind of understand what time period Jeremiah is dealing with and uh, things like that. And I think I also put in your notes kind of a timeline so you can kind of see where Jeremiah is at in the timeline. Like he's, con- he's a contemporary of both Daniel and Ezekiel, although Daniel and Ezekiel are in Babylon. They're not in Judah where he is, okay? So the first uh, guy we need to know is Josiah. You remember Josiah? Because he was the last good king in Israel. He was a boy king under him. Remember, he reestablished the worship in the temple. Uh, They found the book of the law under his reign. So he is a really good and godly king. And because of his righteousness, the judgment that was going to fall on Judah is delayed. And the judgment was coming uh, the writer of Kings tells us because of the sins of Manasseh. Manasseh was a horrible king, practiced child sacrifice. And if you go back to Second Kings, you'll read uh, where the Lord says, because of the sins of Manasseh, Judah will be removed. But Josiah has this preserving element where the people are allowed to stay in the land for a little longer. Okay? So Josiah is the good last king. He dies. His son Jehoahaz comes in. And this is where we get to the last two chapters of the book of 2 Kings. And you can go back and look at all of this and see the detail there. But Jehoahaz, he was evil, and he's, his significant thing is that he, is, he pays tribute to Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, and he is taken captive to Egypt, and he dies there. And so Necho places on the throne of Judah Jehoiakim, who is also known as Eliakim. This is the other thing you got to track down after a while, right? They have multiple names. Why? Don't do that to me. That really throws me off, right? But we have Jehoiakim. He's the brother of Josiah. So he would have been Jehoahaz's uncle, right? Um, And during his reign, Babylon comes up against Judah and Jerusalem, and he is made Nebuchadnezzar's servant. And under him, we have the first deportation of Jews, okay? We will see three deportations to Babylon. He's the first one. There will be a second one. And then the third one is where Jerusalem is totally destroyed. Okay, so just keep in your mind, three deportation to Babylon. The first one under, happens under Jehoiakim, okay? And then Jehoiakim gets killed off, and so we have Jehoiachin, or Coniah, or Jeconiah. And he's referred to as, I believe, Jeconiah and Jehoiachin in Jeremiah. Okay, a lot of chin Naya, Maya names so it's hard to, uh, to discern them, okay? But he's the son of Jehoiakim, and he is taken captive, and this is where 2 Kings ends. 
So it says that Jehoiachin was taken captive, carried back to Babylon. He's imprisoned there. But then remember, this is where we ended last time. There's this hopeful note because he's freed from prison and he is given a table, a seat at the king's table. He's given a daily allowance. He's essentially living as a king in exile. So what that, remember what we said is the good news is is that the, the promise of a descendant of David to sit on the throne of Judah is still there. It's not dead. And then we went, if you go and look at Matthew, you see Jeconiah listed in there, right? So this, this king in exile is in the line, the lineage of Jesus, who's a descendant of Judah, a descendant of David, right? So that's how we know Jesus is the king, okay? So Jeconiah, he's carried off to Babylon. He is uh, in exile there. Then we get to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was placed on the throne of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, so he puts him in, in, uh, in the rule. He is Jehoiachin's uncle and Jehoiakim's brother. Okay, so we're kind of moving around the family tree a little bit here. Okay? He ultimately he will rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar will come up against uh, Jerusalem, and under him, the third and final deportation happens, and the city of Jerusalem is leveled. Okay? A lot of people think when we get to the book of Lamentations and the writer of Lamentations is weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem, that's what he's, he's talking about. This third and final deportation, the city is raised to the ground, the temple is destroyed, all the, the vessels used in the temple and the king's house are carried off into Babylon. So if you remember the story in Daniel, when um, what is name? Belshazzar, remember? He's had the writing on the wall and he's got the vessels from the temple in the house, which would have been from this deportation. Under, and I didn't mention this, under Jehoiachin, when Jehoiachin is carried off, he is carried off in the second deportation. The first deportation, just to see if this helps tie all these things together, that's when Daniel is carried off. So some of the best and wisest in the kingdom, that's when they're taken off is in that, that first deportation. Okay, So under Zedekiah, he is the... Uh, he draws the short straw, and he gets <clears throat> the destruction of the nation attributed to him. Not the way you want to go. And then the last guy that we get is Gedaliah. He's not a member of the royal family. He is placed as a governor over the remnant of Jews who are still in the land after that third and final deportation. He's placed there by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, but when we get to it's chapter 42, I believe, somewhere in that range, he's murdered. He's taken out of the picture, uh, and there's a political issue. Yes? So Jeho- Jehoiachin. Mm-hmm. Jehoiachin. Yeah. It says you have him there three months. So does that mean that he was there for three months and was treated good by the king, like you said, with up and You know, I don't know I <clears throat> No, he we don't have a record of his death after three months. I'm not exactly sure why it says three months. I didn't make that timeline. Uh, I'd have to go look and see what, what that is. So, sorry, I don't have a better answer for you than that. I just put that in there. You weren't supposed to look at it that closely that you see the three months. You're just supposed to get a general idea. Come on, come on, asking me the tough questions. All right, does that kind of make, give you a, maybe a little bit of an idea of the history and the, the time period and what's going on there? All right, so let's do this. Let's try and race through the book and point out some important things and uh, hopefully it helps you uh, get a little better grasp for the book. Uh, <clears throat> I'll say this. If you, if you dive into the study of the prophets, they're immensely beneficial. I, I, I think the prophets are probably my favorite 
section of the Old Testament now. Isaiah is my favorite. Uh, but there, once you kind of get your bearings, you're like, this is really rich stuff. There's a lot of really good stuff. You're seeing all these promises and f- these things the Lord promised to do in the Torah and in the, the, the former prophets, and it's coming to life here. And you see, even in the midst of darkness, there is still hope. And then you see Jesus fulfilling it, and it's, it's good stuff, okay? So the first chapter is the call of Jeremiah. Uh, we see the time of his ministry in verses 1 through 3. Uh, so it gives us the, the, these kings we just discussed about, right, where he was from. Look at verse 2. The word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. So we know who he is, son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. So you trace how long Josiah was king for. You have an idea of when it started. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, who we talked about, son of Josiah, uh, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So all those guys we just covered, now we kind of have an idea of the time frame that they are in. We see in verse 5, uh, that he has been set apart for this ministry from all eternity. Right? The Lord says, Before you in the womb, I knew you and set you apart to this task. You see in verse 9, the Lord will place his words in his mouth. Right, The Lord will empower him to speak this. Verse 10, uh, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And this is his job, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and plant. So it's a message of destruction and a message of salvation. Um, verse 17, there is uh, his, you know, he's describing his prophetic work as work. Dress for this job. It's, it's a job you, you've been uh, tasked to do. And then verse 19, uh, he will succeed even when opposed, right? Jeremiah is going to face a lot of persecution. The prophets, and we talked about this with Elijah and Elisha, they are not like well-liked dudes, they would not have huge Instagram followings, right? They're just not like because uh, they're preaching a message that's unpopular to an unrepentant, rebellious people, okay? And so Jeremiah, though, in spite of the opposition, the word of the Lord will not fail. And then we get to chapter two, and we see Israel's sin, the punishment coming, and their refusal to repent, and I say broadly covered because I think in the following section, we're going to narrow in and look at specific instances of sin, okay? But what, the, what I think he's doing here is he is laying down broadly and historically Israel's problem, and that's this, that from their inception as a nation, they have rebelled against the Lord. They have despised his word, and they have broken his covenant, okay? And he's going to go back even to the rebellion in the wilderness, right? This is the history of this nation. They rebel against the Lord. Um, so the judgment of exile that Jeremiah is talking about is something that has long been prophesied about. Can't speak. Go to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, and you can see this, the blessings and cursings of the covenant, okay? So we get to chapter 2, and we see the Lord's indictment. Jeremiah proclaims this message in Jerusalem. Verse 2 tells us that. Uh, Israel is described as a young bride in verses 2 through 3. Uh, look at verse 5, and the Lord's asking a question, what wrong did you find in me? What wrong did you find in Yahweh that you would leave me? Right? It's in, and uh, I think Isaiah, well, let's see. It's one of the Psalms, actually, that does this a very similar pattern, right? Describes, well, it's, uh, actually, I'm not going to go there because of time. You go look it up yourself, right? Uh, then you look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord's describing what I've done for them, bringing them out of Egypt, putting them in the land. 
Um, And then you see in verse 8, what did the spiritual leaders in Israel do? And it says, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after other things that do not profit. So here's the problem, right? This is what the Lord has done. This is who you were, and this is where you are, right? You're not, you're not wholly committed to me. Um, then in verses 9 through 13, uh, Yahweh contends with them for they have committed cosmic treason. Look at like verse uh, 11. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Oh, and look at verse 10. This is important too. Because he's saying, look at the other nations. Has any other nation done this, right? Cross to the coast of Cyprus and see or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods? Right, this... this uh, Adultery is foreign, he's saying, even to the, to the pagan nations, right? And I've, Yahweh's the one true God who's actually delivered you out of, out of Egypt. <clears throat> Chapter 2, look at verse 22. They cannot cleanse themselves from the stain of their sin. We'll see this, I think it's in chapter 7, where he says the sin of Israel is engraved with an iron pen, right? It's, it's, it's indelible, um, It's not hidden from the Lord. Look at verses 27 and 28. Your gods that you have now will not deliver you in the coming time of distress. So when judgment, when Babylon comes riding in, you can cry out to Baal. That Baal's not going to save you. And then look at chapter 3 and verse 2. The Lord is saying Israel's a whore. And then verse 5 of chapter 3, you have done all the evil you could do, right? It's like this is the picture of a nation given over to the wrath of God, like Romans 1, right? There, they are, and the Lord said, here you go, and they took it all, okay? <clears throat> so then in verse 6 of chapter 3, we see uh, Jeremiah calling Israel to repent. And this is his sermon at first to the northern kingdom, right? So to, to those people, he's saying, uh, repent. He says in, in this is the chapter 3, verse 11, he's saying that Judah is more treacherous than Israel. So the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Remember the history of Israel from day one, what was their deal? Jeroboam comes in and establishes the golden calf worship. So from day one, they're, they're an idolatrous nation. And then in chapter four, we see uh, judgment coming upon Israel, starting in verse five, uh, a disaster from the north. There is language used in here that is... Um, describing a decreation of sorts. If you look at like verses 22 through 26, it talks about uh, without form and void and darkness, right? It sounds like the creation in Genesis 1, but it's the reverse, right? Because of the judgment that's being brought upon them. Um, There's a refusal to listen to the prophets we see in chapter 5 and verse 13. Look at chapter 6 and verse 10. This is an important... uh, uh, drawing our attentions to Deuteronomy and, and those passages talking about the need for a circumcised heart and circumcised ears. Look at 6.10. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Right? They don't have the transformed hearts to obey and love the Lord. And then chapter 6, verse 13, even the religious leaders are corrupt. Uh, the, the people that should be setting the example are, are wicked. So then we get to chapter 7 through 23, and I've called this further exposition and detailed descriptions of Israel's sin, their refusal to repent, and the coming judgment. Really concise title there, uh, alliterated nicely for you. Not really, it's just a run-on sentence. Um, 
And I think what, what, what Jeremiah is doing here, what the Lord is doing through him, is, is detailing more uh, explicitly sins that the nation was committing. So he's kind of broadly covered those in the first five chapters, four chapters. Now he's going to hone in on some more specific uh, instances. The other thing that we need to know, when we think about these passages and what the Lord is going to do to the nation of Israel in judgment, um, we need to keep in mind it is not unjust of the Lord to do this. God's judgment is just and right. That, that's exactly what Pastor Jess was talking about this morning, right, with the, with the cross, right? Uh, so when we see the Lord fulfilling his promise to bring judgment on a, on a rebellious nation, he is in the right, okay? Um, <clears throat> chapter 7, verse 1, following through till, uh, can't turn my pages here, to chapter 10. I've entitled it, The Brazen Sin of Judah, um, and brazen is the idea of an unrestrained guilt. There's no shame over it. They're like, yeah, we're sinning, and who cares, right? We're going to continue to do it. And that's the, what's going on in, in, uh, in Israel. Um, and the important thing that we see in chapter 7 through 10 is that it shows how Judah is trying to syncretize their pagan worship with the worship of Yahweh. So they're going to do, they're, again, they're going through the motions, they're sacrificing the temple, they still have the priests, but their hearts are far from the Lord. They're, uh, they're, they, they thought, because of those practices, that they would never fall under judgment. And so he's really addressing that in chapter 7 through 10. No judgment is coming in spite of what you're doing, right? Um, so this, chapter 7, is a, is a sermon uh, we see in chapter 7, verse 14, they're deceiving themselves into thinking they have the blessing of the Lord while living in, in sin. Chapter 7, verse 25, they've rejected the word of the Lord. Uh, chapter 7, verse 31, they're practicing child sacrifice, right? So he's just pointing out, like, this is a problem. Um, Look at chapter 8, verse 12. They don't know how to blush at being caught in their sin. So even when it's pointed out, they're not shamed by it. It doesn't, it doesn't really get them. And then we get to chapter 8 and verse 19, and we see the first of Jeremiah's um, mourning or laments, right? And what happens is the Lord responds. So if you look at uh, eight eighteen, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. And then we see... Um, Look down at like verse 7 You start of chapter 9. You see the Lord responding. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? So Jeremiah is lamenting over what is coming, and the Lord responds. Then we get to chapter 10, and we see the futility and stupidity of idolatrous practices that you've learned from the other nations. So here he's going to list what you're doing. Um, you know, he's like... Uh, 1010, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. In his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So he's contrasting the true God with their false gods that they have, uh, that they have made. Chapter 11, uh, I entitled this, The Conspiracy of Judah to Forsake the Covenant. And again, just as in chapter 7 and in chapter 11 now, uh, Jeremiah or the Lord through Jeremiah is very is pointing out um, that Israel's failures as a nation all go back to their failures to obey the covenant. 
Right? Why are these things happening? You've broken the covenant, okay? Um, so in chapter 11, verse 4, we see they are held accountable for the covenant established at Sinai. Um, we see uh, there are evil men who are seeking Jeremiah's life in 11.21. So this is where the persecution starts to, uh, to come upon him. And the Lord's response to that is, I will preserve you, I will protect you, they will not uh, take your life. And this is another one of Jeremiah's laments. In chapter 12, verse 1, uh, why are the evil people prospering? Right? If I'm doing what's right and I'm preaching this, why am I being persecuted and why are they continuing on? Chapter 12, verse 7, uh, the Lord has forsaken Judah. And then in chapter 12, verse 15, the Lord will have compassion again. So though he is bringing judgment, he will have compassion and restore them again. Then we get to chapter 13 and we have this illustration, this imagery of the ruined loincloth. So this is a physical illustration that Jeremiah performs. The Lord tells him, go out and buy a ruined loincloth, right? So buy some underwear and go and stick it in the cleft of a rock in a muddy place by a river and then go back and get it. And what happens? The loincloth is ruined. And the point is, it doesn't work. It doesn't, it won't do the job it's supposed to. And he says, Israel was to cling to me, but now they're like this ruined loincloth. They don't cling to me. So that's the, the image uh, that, has, uh, that the Lord is, is using. He says in this, in this chapter, because of their sin, exile is coming against them. You see that. Uh, and then in, look at chapter 13, like verse 14. What this giving over, giving them over to their sin, right? He's going to make the leaders drunk and he's going to cause them to crash into one another. They will dash themselves to pieces. And then you see like in chapter 13, verse 17, their pride keeps them from repentance, right? They're too proud to repentance. And then we get to chapter 14 and here really we see their repentance is too late. I thought of the, uh, the, the musical My Fair Lady, remember, the, you'll be sorry, but your tears will be too late, that line in that song. Anybody know, know what I'm talking about? I don't know. That just came into my mind as I was thinking. I was like, because that's it. You may be sorry. You may start weeping and lamenting as judgment's coming, but your tears are too late, okay? So uh, they've missed the point. Uh, we see a drought comes in chapter 14, verse 1. Verse 7, we see they cry out to the Lord, but what Jeremiah is, is teaching us is their confession is disingenuous. They're not truly sorrowly. They're not truly repentant. So in verse 10, the Lord does not accept their repentance because if they were truly repentant, he would respond. He says that over and over. Um, then we see in uh, chapter 14, verse 13, false prophets declare the Lord won't judge. Right? He's not going to bring his judgment up against us. And this goes back to what we saw in chapter 7. They think because they're Jews and because they're following the proper worship practices, judgment won't fall. Um, let's go to chapter 16. We're um, running way out of time, but we'll get as far as we get, and you'll at least have an idea of where we're going in the book, okay? Uh, chapter 16, judgment and salvation. So here, Jeremiah is told not to marry, not to have children, and the reason is is because of the disaster that's coming. It's gonna be so bad don't marry, don't have children, don't go to the house of feasting, don't go to the house of mourning, he says. Um, Jeremiah is uh, a, a picture of this coming death by sword, famine, and disease. Um, look at chapter 16, verse 15. There is hope, though, the hope of a coming restoration, and the language is described as a new exodus. 
Right? It's going to be a reverse exodus. So just as they were brought out of Egypt into the land, they're going to be carried out of the land, but one day they will be brought back into the land. So we see this same cycle happening again. Chapter 17, the obvious, this is what I was talking about earlier with the sin of Judah. Look at, well, 17.1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altar. So it's, it's blatant, it's open, it's obvious, it can be seen. Um, and then we get to town to 17.19, and we see another sermon preached by Jeremiah uh, dealing with the Sabbath breakers. So they were not obeying the Sabbath. And, and what we see in like verse 23 is the stiffening of their necks against this instruction. So they're, they're being taught the word of the Lord, and they're hardening their hearts again. Chapter 18, we get another picture, the picture of the potter and the clay. And the point being there is that Israel is the clay. The Lord is the potter. He has the right to do with them as he pleases. Okay, So that's the illustration that is there. Chapter 19, we have another uh, illustration. This is the broken flask. So the Lord tells Jeremiah, go buy a, a flask, a clay pot, go out into a field and smash it and say, this is what I'm doing to Judah. Right? You're going to be erect like a, a pot which cannot be mended. The Lord is bringing disaster upon them. Uh, and, and as we'll see, right, the, the plans of men think that they can circumnavigate around the plans of the Lord. And the point in this is you can't do that. You can't get around it. Chapter 20, we see a persecution of Jeremiah by Pasher the priest. We see his lament, like in verse 7 of this passage, uh, notice like he says, I'm ostracized, right? Like I'm, I'm by myself. There's nobody, nobody with me. But we talked about chapter 20, verse 9. He cannot not speak the word of the Lord. It is a fire within him. Um, and then we get to chapter 21, and we see this is Babylon's coming against Jerusalem. And this is where we really start to get to some of the historical components of the book. So this is spoken to uh, Zedekiah and other officials. And these chapters, chapters 21 through 24, are specifically looking at the house of David. So the kings uh, that are of Judah, that are descended from David, um, and their failures, right? We're going to see those, those things listed. Um, Jim Hamilton said about this passage, he said, hope will not come from the present line of kings. Instead, hope is fixed on the future when Yahweh regathers the flock he drove away and sets up shepherds over them. Okay? Um, Go to chapter 23. This is an important chapter. Here we see this uh, righteous branch. Look at verse 5, 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So this is a hopeful looking forward to the reign of Christ. Right? He is the righteous branch, a descendant of David. Then we get to chapter 24, and at chapter 24, we have a shift in the book. So um, the second deportation has taken place. Right, He was just dealing with Zedekiah, um, and this is where it actually goes back in time, right? because Zedekiah was the third and final deportation, the destruction of, of the nation. But here we really get a shift where the messages are going to be directed now to a people in exile. Um, 
So we get to chapter 24, and he has this vision of the good figs and the bad figs. And what he says is that the good figs are those who are in Babylon. The bad figs are those who are in Judah. And they are spoilt and rotten and good for nothing, and things are only going to get worse for them. But those who are in Babylon, and this is the thing that's kind of interesting, they're going to flourish, and they're going to succeed. And as we see, like with Daniel, right? Here's an exile who flourishes and is raised to great, great heights. Uh, we see the length of the exile, 25, 11, 70 years, this land shall be a ruin and a waste. Um, we also see in chapter 25 that Babylon, even though they are an instrument of judgment, they will be judged. The Lord will bring judgment against them. Um, look at chapter 27 and 28. Here you have another illustration. Jeremiah puts on a, a yoke, and he says um, that... that uh, all of these nations have been given, uh, and he's speaking about Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon, as well as Judah, saying, all of these nations have been given over to Nebuchadnezzar, come under his yoke. Don't rebel against him. If you do, uh, you will be uh, judged for that. And so there's false prophets that come in and say, oh, we will, we will break, the yoke has been broken, right? We're not going to be subject to Babylon, and that's specifically Hananiah, and Jeremiah says, you're a false prophet, and you're going to die. And he does, right? So proving again that Jeremiah is a true prophet. Chapter 29, we get to Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. Um, this is where we have uh, the most uh, improperly interpreted verse in the Bible, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know I have the plans for you, plans to prosper you, not harm you, right? That's speaking specifically in this context. It's not that it's not true, but we often apply it incorrectly, okay? Um, but basically the Lord is saying, uh, or the Lord is saying through Jeremiah, you're in Babylon, live here. Plant houses, plant houses, no, <laughs> build houses, plant, I just want to see if you're awake. Plant gardens, marry, seek the welfare of the city, right? And, and that, there is a message to us as we think like we are exiles, right? And so we're not like just living on a cloud, but we seek the welfare of where, where we are at. And so there's, there is uh, some, some application to us. Chapters 30 through 35, I'm going to try and get through this. Uh, this is a hopeful future. So chapters 30 through 33 are what we call a little book of consolation. And this is the, the collection of letters. Part of it was sent to these exiles in Babylon where Jeremiah is, is encouraging them. And here he's really speaking about restoration. So chapter 30, a future restoration is coming. You've been exiled out, but remember 70 years and then I will bring you back, says the Lord, and I will plant you in there. Uh, look at chapter 30, verse 9. Uh, they will serve the king that Yahweh will raise up. Chapter 31, verse 1, Yahweh will be their God and Israel will be his people. Uh, chapter 31, verse 3, Yahweh has never forsaken or stopped loving his people. That's an important thing to hear as a Jew living in exile, right? The covenant still is in effect, okay? Uh, but that gets us to the new covenant, right? So this is where the promise of the new covenant comes, where Israel, you think about this, they've broken the covenant, that's why they're in judgment. The Lord is bringing that, and then he says, I'm gonna make a new covenant with you, and I'm gonna write the law on your heart, right? So you can obey me. I will put my spirit within you. It's so much better, right, than the old covenant. So such good news for a people in exile. Uh, Jeremiah demonstrates this in chapter 32. Uh, the, the situation is that the city is under siege, and so the Lord says, I want you to buy a piece of property because that's what you always do, right? When your city is being besieged, you're like, let's buy a piece of property. But the reason he does this is to, to show 
uh, people will again buy houses right in this area. It will be a, a place where people live, and so this is to be. This is a promise that the Lord will restore the people there. Um, chapter thirty-five is also interest, interesting. Uh, we have the obedience of the Rechabites who is a, a specific clan within Israel. And Jeremiah goes to them and they had uh, been told by their father never to drink wine. And the point being is he puts wine before him and they don't drink it. And he says, why? Well, because our father told us not to. And the point being is, look, here's this clan within Israel that is never drinking wine because their father told them not to. And you, Israel as a nation, have totally rejected the Lord who gave you his law. You've not obeyed it at all right? So that's kind of the illustration. Are you good? Are you hanging in there? Can we finish this up real quick? All right. Slap yourself if you need to stay awake. (laughs) Uh, Chapter 36 through 45, we have continuing rebellion in spite of judgment. So here we see in chapter 36, Jehoiakim, you can go figure out which king he is, where he is in the line. He despises the word of the Lord. So Jeremiah writes out the word of the Lord. It is sent to him. Jehoiakim has it read, and he cuts off each line as it's read and throws it in the fire. Right? He despises the word of the Lord that has been, been given. He does not fear the Lord, uh, and so he, he uh, will face judgment. And there's a message in here. Look at 36.3. Uh, if, if Judah repents, the Lord will relent of the judgment he is bringing. But Jehoiakim has hardened himself against this. Um. Look at chapter 39, we see the fall of Jerusalem, okay, so this is under the reign of Zedekiah, the last king. Jeremiah, however, is protected and saved through uh, the work of Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, you see that in 39.18, so now at this point, chapter 39 on, Jerusalem has fallen to captivity, Zedekiah is carried off to Babylon where he, is, he uh, will eventually die. Uh, He has his eyes gouged out. And then in chapter 40, we see that Jeremiah has the option to go to Babylon, but he decides to stay in uh, in Judah and in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 41, we get to uh, Gedaliah. Remember, Gedaliah is the governor that was placed over Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, and he is assassinated. And he is assassinated by a group of uh, members of the, the royal family. They kill him, and then they flee to Egypt. And Jeremiah, what we see in like chapter 42, one of the warnings to Israel over and over was don't ever go back down to Egypt, right? That's what they always wanted to do. They wanted to go back to Egypt. It was always a temptation and they were warned not to do it. So in chapter 42, the Lord says, don't go back to Egypt. They do, they go down to Egypt. And if I recall right, they take Jeremiah with them. And there Jeremiah is prophesying, hey, you're going to be destroyed because of this, and they are, okay? So they are rebels in Egypt. They start worshiping the Egyptian gods, and in chapter 44, we see judgment is coming for them. Then we get to chapters 46 through 51, and this is the end of the book. We'll finish up here, and this we see judgment on Israel's enemies, okay? Remember the Lord in his providence always uses other nations as instruments of judgment, right? Israel was an instrument of judgment against the Canaanites. And now Babylon has been an instrument of judgment against Judah. But now all these other nations that have been Israel's enemies, judgment's falling on them. Okay, so we see these all listed where this is where Jeremiah is a prophet to the nations. So Egypt is listed. Um, And I think I put in your handouts kind of a map to give you an idea of where these places are. 
So Egypt, the Philistines, uh, Moab. Uh, when you think about Moab, think of Ruth. She was a Moabitess, right? Edom uh, is later on. Edom, that's the descendants of Esau, right? Jacob and Esau. Uh, Ammon, uh, Damascus, which would be Syria, Kedar, and Hazor, and Elam, okay? These are all nations that Jeremiah is dealing with, saying the judgment of the Lord is falling on them. And then in chapter 50 to uh, 51, we get the longest judgment against Babylon, which is described. And I think the reason is, is because so much time has been spent on Babylon and who they are. Um, the Lord is going to bring judgment against them. A lot of the language that is used to describe the judgment that falls on Judah by Babylon is then turned on Babylon, right? Um, uh, you can see like chapter 51, verse 5, Israel and Judah have not been forsaken, but Babylon has. 51.11, the Medes will come up against Babylon. So we will see that in Daniel, right? When the Medes and the Persians come in and overthrow the kingdom. 51.24, Babylon will be repaid for their evil. This is the other thing too. They're an instrument used by the Lord and they are wholly accountable for the wrongs they've committed against the nation, right? So how the Lord does this in his divine sovereignty and providence is a mystery, right, in a lot of ways, but yet they are held accountable, and yet he uses that. Um, and then chapter 52 uh, closes, and chapter 52 is basically uh, the exact same text as you find in Second Kings 25, and it struck me this way, and I think this is the, the hopeful end. Kings ends with the hope of Jehoiachin on the throne and being exalted to the place of a king, the line of, of David is still alive. And Jeremiah ends in the exact same place. And I think that that's meant to be the hopeful note the book ends on, right? The end is not judgment. Uh, ultimately for the nation of Israel, the Lord will restore them. And so here's, a, here's an example already of how that's coming to pass. The house, the line of David is still alive. There's still a king um, on the throne, okay? So those promises of restoration will come back, come to pass. Right? Next time we will look at Ezekiel.